This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the Mary Catherine Higdon murder case? Higdon was tried in 2019 for the 2018 murder of Stephen Freeman. The jury would find her not guilty. This case takes place in Griffin, Georgia, and primarily involves two people, 24-year-old Mary Catherine Higdon and 23-year-old Stephen Freeman. The two were in a romantic relationship for about seven years. They lived in the same residence. Higdon worked as a teacher's assistant part-time, and Freeman worked in construction. This takes us to August 1, 2018. Higdon calls 911 and tells the dispatcher that she just accidentally shot her boyfriend in the neck with a Glock 43. The weapon was actually a Glock 42. I'll talk more about that later. She claims she grabbed the gun to bring it to bed, and it mysteriously discharged. She also claimed that she did not know the gun had a cartridge in the chamber. The police arrived, and Freeman was taken to the hospital. He would die right before midnight. Initially, Higdon told the police that she was handing Freeman the firearm when it just discharged. So already from her conversation with the dispatcher, to when she talks to the police, we see that her story changes. Later, she would tell the police something even different than what she told them this time. She said that she was tossing the gun to Freeman, and it went off. So it's getting hard to keep track of how many times the story is changing. At this point, she would have us believe that while the gun was in midair, the trigger pulled itself. It must have been one of those magic triggers. And the round that was discharged happened to strike Freeman in the neck, out of all the places it could have gone inside the residence. While being interviewed at the police station, Higdon allegedly confessed that she murdered Freeman in anger. She was arrested and charged with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault, and the possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. So this seemed like an open and shut case. She told the dispatcher she shot Freeman, and then she confessed to the police. But here we see a bit of a technical difficulty arises. The recording that the police made of the confession actually contained feedback. You couldn't hear a confession. The prosecution decided to press forward with the case without the confession because they had Higdon again admitting that she shot Freeman on the 911 call. And of course, they had other evidence as well. Her trial would take place in 2019. Before the trial started, Higdon turned down a plea bargain. She was offered life in prison with the possibility of parole. So she turned that down. This case goes to trial. The prosecution had a straightforward case, although it did have several components. Here are the points of their argument. 
Higdon admitted that she lied to the police. The prosecution pointed out that she made revisions to her story ten times. Higdon shot Freeman deliberately out of anger. The relationship was in trouble. Freeman was ignoring texts sent by Higdon. He then refused to eat dinner that she had prepared for him. Higdon retrieved the weapon. She loaded cartridges into the magazine and left cooking grease on the magazine when she did that. When she inserted the magazine into the grip, she chambered around by pulling the slide back and releasing it. She left cooking grease on the slide as well. The firearm used in this case was a Glock 42, even though she incorrectly identified it as a Glock 43. A Glock 42 is a semi-automatic pistol chambered in 380 ACP. This is a fairly common self-defense round. It is less powerful than a 9mm and usually only carried because it's small, therefore easy to conceal, and it does not have a lot of recoil. A Glock 42 is quite similar to a Glock 43. The 43 is chambered in 9mm. If somebody wanted to intentionally kill another person in the type of situation that Higdon was in, the Glock 42 would be an unusual choice. Freeman had a number of shotguns and other weapons that were far more powerful than the Glock 42. Just like all Glock pistols, the Glock 42 does not have a traditional external safety, like one that would be engaged or disengaged with the operator's thumb. Glock pistols do have what's referred to as a trigger safety. It's a piece of plastic that comes out of the center of the trigger. It's supposed to reduce the chances of accidentally snagging the trigger and prevent the trigger from moving back if the gun is dropped. When somebody mounts the trigger with their finger, the finger pushes that piece to be flush with the trigger and removes the obstruction behind the trigger, allowing the trigger to move all the way back and fire the weapon. The amount of pressure required to pull the trigger on a Glock 42 is around 5.75 pounds. Taking all this into account, it is highly unlikely that Higdon accidentally pulled the trigger. In addition to the circumstances directly involved in the shooting, the prosecution also talked about how Higdon was very familiar with firearms. She sold them when she worked in a sporting goods store. They noted that it would seem unlikely that she wouldn't understand the difference between a weapon that had a round chambered and a weapon without a cartridge in the chamber. There was other evidence against Higdon as well. Witnesses said that Higdon struck Freeman on prior occasions, pointed a gun at him, and threatened to bring an end to her own life. There were text messages from Freeman to Higdon where he mentioned how she pointed a gun at him, and she never refuted those text messages. It seems odd that a couple would be texting back and forth, and one person would say, hey, remember that time you pointed a gun at me? And the other person would not challenge that at all. It's one of those things that really stands out when people are messaging back and forth. At the trial, she said she never pointed a gun at him. She was more interested in harming herself. So she did admit that she was in possession of a firearm during a time when her emotions were not well regulated. So that moves kind of close to the area we're in, but she's stopping short of saying that she ever pointed that weapon at Freeman. Higdon appeared to be somewhat obsessed with Freeman. She would call him and text him frequently. He was planning on leaving her in just two days. He was moving out of the area. He had not told her, but apparently he had made some arrangements. At the scene, there was evidence of some type of fight. There was food scattered about, well beyond what would be considered just a messy residence. The night before the shooting, Freeman stayed at a friend's house. He said he was running from Satan. His own words should have been a clue that he was not in the best of circumstances. 
When somebody has a chance to escape Satan, they should take it. There is a reason why nobody gets their hands stamped when they're leaving hell. It's the same reason nobody buys multi-day passes for hell. The defense painted a different story. Higdon testified at the trial. This is usually considered a bad move for a defendant. She said that she was in love with Freeman. She would never do anything to cause him harm. She stuck with the story that she believed there was no round in the chamber. However, now she admitted that she did point the weapon at Freeman. She said that she was scared of him and just trying to get him to leave the house. She indicated that Freeman lunged at her. She went on to say that he was abusive and the level of harm he was causing was increasing. She said that Freeman sexually assaulted her on two occasions and struck her. He also sent her a number of threatening text messages. These were presented at trial. There were over 60 pages of impolite and even threatening messages sent from Freeman to Higdon. So this was an important point for her defense. Then we get into a familiar narrative. Higdon talked about how Freeman was into rough sex. He liked to tie her up, so kind of a BDSM thing. There was a reference in one of his messages to the Red Room. It appears to be a reference to the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. We have seen this defense strategy many times. Jody Arias, Shayna Hubers, and Ezra McCandless, just to name a few. In each of those instances, the victim was a romantic partner of the perpetrator, and the perpetrator claimed that the victim had unusual sexual preferences and was violent in that area. All three of those people were convicted. A defense expert testified that Higdon had battered woman syndrome. The prosecution, of course, brought in their own expert who said that she did not. The investigation was poorly executed, like the police did not do a good job. First responders moved the alleged murder weapon, ostensibly for their own safety, even though they simply could have taken Higdon out of the house. The government spent quite a bit of money to unlock Higdon's phone. They wanted to get all of her messages, but they did not spend the money to unlock Freeman's phone. So there was information on that phone that potentially could have been exculpatory. We also see the alleged confession that was mysteriously inaudible. And it really did look suspicious. She's talking to the police. She's getting close to a confession, maybe. And all of a sudden, there's a bunch of static. In response to Higdon's testimony, the prosecution noted that Higdon never complained about Freeman being abusive. Higdon searched for images of bondage just two hours before the shooting when she was on a babysitting job. As far as the allegation about Freeman lunging at Higdon, the prosecution noted that almost all of Freeman's blood was on the bed where he was shot, making it seem as though he did not move too much after being hit. The jury deliberated for four hours. The initial vote was 10 guilty and 2 not guilty, but the two jurors who believed that Higdon may not be guilty managed to sway the other 10. So we see that the jury found that Higdon was not guilty of all the charges. Even though it does appear as though they believed she actually committed murder, they found that there was a reasonable doubt because the investigation was problematic. So what are my thoughts here? Was there a reasonable doubt in the case of Mary Catherine Higdon? One of the things that we see in the criminal justice system is that the government has a tremendous amount of power. They decide who to charge and who to release. They are on the offense. They have substantial financial resources. They often intercept evidence prior to the defense. 
meaning they have the ability to make mistakes and lose things that could be of importance. I do believe that juries should hold the government accountable when investigations are not run correctly. I don't think it takes a lot of errors to add up to reasonable doubt. Even one could be enough in a certain circumstance. In this particular case, there was doubt, but I don't think there was a reasonable doubt. I think it would have made more sense to split the difference and maybe convict her of the aggravated assault and the possession of the firearm during the commission of a felony. She still would have went to prison for quite some time. If they didn't have the confidence to go for the malice or felony murder, it does make sense to drop down and maybe look at those lesser charges. To just find her not guilty of everything seems a bit extreme. She did, after all, shoot somebody to death. When taking all the factors from this case and weighing them, the fact that she pointed a weapon at another person and pulled the trigger is strong evidence of guilt. It's hard to believe that she really thought there was no round in the chamber. Why would somebody point an empty gun at somebody? Even if she did think that that would simply intimidate him, why did she pull the trigger? The idea that the trigger pulled itself is ridiculous. Higdon would have us believe in the seldom heard of cousin of the tooth fairy named the trigger pull fairy. Instead of leaving money for teeth, this mythical being squeezes the triggers of firearms in exchange for nonsensical excuses. It's a little frightening to think that Higdon is walking around free. This case reminds me a little bit of the Casey Anthony case. As worrisome as this is, I would rather the jury make this mistake, finding somebody who is probably guilty, not guilty, as opposed to finding someone who is not guilty, guilty. This case should serve as a reminder to law enforcement that their job is to run a clean investigation. They must be beyond reproach. What really stands out to me about this case in terms of Higdon's behavior is that she really wasn't good at getting away with this. This is a person who made 10 modifications to her story, allegedly confessed, left physical evidence all over the place, and had allegedly been violent toward Freeman. It's really amazing that she got away with what she did. There are people who shot other people who were very careful about what they did after the shooting. One could look at them and say, all right, maybe they didn't do it. I do not see this as one of those cases. Higdon should consider herself extremely fortunate to be free. I hope she can turn her life around and be productive. So what happened in this case? What was going on with cognition or mental health factors or personality factors? Well, of course, nobody knows. I'm just speculating here. I'm offering a theory. Here's what I think could have happened. Higdon and Freeman were in a relationship where they hurt each other. Things were getting a little too scary for Freeman, so he decided he wanted out. But at the same time, he liked sex. His brain was telling him to save himself and get out of here, and let's say another advisor was giving him a different message. At the same time, Higdon realized the relationship was falling apart. She became increasingly desperate. She could see that Freeman was drifting away from her. She searches images of bondage in an effort to come up with ideas to make Freeman happy, to satisfy his desires. She was desperately looking for anything that would keep him engaged. On the evening of the shooting, she reached a breaking point. Her rage grew out of control. She hastily retrieved the Glock 42, loaded it with cartridges, and shot Freeman once. Then she had a strong reaction to what she had just done. She realized she acted impulsively. She didn't really plan out a story. She just made things up as she went along. I think what happens in these types of relationships is that they have a fatal flaw. 
the people just don't get along. Additionally, there is possessiveness, anger, and violence. But somehow, because of the perceived good, the couple tries to work it out. They try to latch on to what they feel was working in the relationship, but they have no way to fix what's broken. It's almost like having a car that won't start because it's out of fuel. Instead of putting fuel in it, the owner puts new tires on it, puts a new battery in it, washes it, and then they're mad because it won't run. Some relationships are toxic. Things can happen in a relationship, so there really is no going back. Sometimes trying to salvage a relationship is like seeing this glass of water that contains poison and thinking, it's all right, I can just clean the water. Maybe, but wouldn't it be safer just to pour a new glass? This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.